I'm Megan and I love the Inky List because they have products for everyone. Four years ago, I had really horrible cystic acne and I didn't have a skincare routine at the time. So I mostly was just Googling everything. And I think it's so cool that you have the ability to ask Inky. There was this whole world that I didn't really know anything about and they tell you how to use each product. So I was like, yes, sign me up. I'm gonna try this. I do feel like the Inky List is my friend. That's so cheesy to say, but I, I definitely do. Okay, to my first guest, and he is some kind of superhuman. He served in the Royal Marines for 20 years and was a Special Forces Sergeant serving with the Special Boat Service. His name is Jason Fox, better known as Foxy from Channel 4's SAS Who Dares Wins. I really enjoyed our conversation. He has so many stories to tell. I should point out that we spoke before the coronavirus pandemic really took hold. And it's a shame in a way because I would love to have got his view on it and how we can better cope with it. Uh, I should say that he does loads of Insta Lives and uh, loads of podcasts of his own, which uh, will definitely give some insight into his view on Corona and how we can all kind of step up to the plate and look after ourselves physically and mentally. He's brilliant on all of that, as you're about to find out in this podcast. Yeah, he has got loads to say on his own life and the wider world. I think you're really going to enjoy what you're about to hear. Ladies and gentlemen, Jason Fox. So here we are on a beautifully sunny February afternoon and uh, in central London. Tell us about this space, Foxy. Uh, is it yours? Do you own the lot? This, I wish. No, this space is it's shared office space, actually, so people can come and rent areas off it but what the reason i'm here is because the gym the guys that own the gym that are on, that's below this building so because of the gym we get to use rooms and stuff it's like a bit of a perk it's i mean it's an amazing gym yeah. especially well, the in gym's Central. awesome it's called the manor the manor yeah and the, the shared office space is called the office group if anyone's interested <laughs> there you go you've got there your you plugs go. done um so how do you feel you've come to this point in your life that you're here training, doing a podcast with me, juggling all sorts of different pieces, bits of telework, charity work? It all seems a far cry from where you started out at 16, going into the Marines. Yeah, I don't know how it, I don't know how it happened. It's like I never ever, I don't think I've planned an awful lot in my life, to be honest, apart from maybe wanting to join the military. And then this, I don't know. Yeah, I did, you know, I did 20 years in the military. I left, I got medically discharged because I was suffering from mental health issues and um, I just didn't know what I was going to do. And, um, yeah, through, over a period of about three, four years, I sort of fumbled my way through civilian life, did a few, did a few jobs, tried to get back into the security industry, which wasn't great, and then weirdly just found myself in telly I mean that's in a nutshell but I suppose it all started was when I left the military got a job as a projects manager for a facilities management company which was horrendous as in horrendous for me I just it was just it, I mean it just didn't work and it probably very nearly killed me and then when I realized that I needed to change that I left tried to get into security, or not tried to get into security, got in, naturally defaulted into security, but there was a few jobs that sort of dried up because of the financial crisis, or especially the crisis with the price of oil. And so I lost a load of work, and then I was scratching around for money, very skint, and then a friend of mine, a guy called Aldo Kane, had a load of work on and said, mate, can you cover one of my jobs, which was basically me going out abroad with a TV crew and being the underwater cameraman's dive buddy. So all I did was just sit underwater at about six metres and check his air and That's got a name in TV. a specific job is that, isn't it? Yeah, it was, well, it, was, it was, yeah. It was, I mean, the job was pretty boring, but then what, we would do, what he was doing was filming four old underwater archaeologists looking for antiquities on all these old pirate shipwrecks and then what what actually happened was me and him got bored in the fourth week and decided to do our own bit of 
searching and we found a massive bar of silver and it went on from there. Oh my God, that doesn't, I love how you just casually thrown that in. That doesn't just happen. You've obviously got a very specialist set of skills to be there in the first place and then you just, what, combined your skill sets and found this treasure. Go on, tell me. Specific skills that helped me find that bar of silver were these two massive hands that fucking just basically dug a hole in a load of mud. So basically, yeah, I was out there. I know how to dive. Obviously, that's what I did in the military for a period of time. And then we were that this guy, me and this guy Sam Brown. We were that, so bored with watching these guys. Just thought they used to dust mud away with toothbrushes and whatnot. Just being very careful with the dive side. And we were like ah, fuck, bollocks. We just went down. And literally there was like a, an excavated area. Sam filmed me and said, basically pointed to the hole and said, get in there and have a look. And I just went in there and dug away. What, he had intelligence that pointed in, in no, the right direction? No. Like you didn't just dig and stumble across No, no, it. There, no. There was, a, there was like a, an area marked off which the, the, the archaeologists, these treasure hunters, whatever you want to call them, they were interested in. They were like, right, that is that is a shipwreck, and it, they 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 said, or the guy that was adamant that it was Captain Kidd's adventure galley, which was his famous ship. And so when he was off sorting himself out, getting some more sort of air in his cylinders, we went and decimated his dive site. But in the process, found this fifty-five kilogram lump of silver. So what happened? Um, everyone had kittens for about twenty-four hours. Uh, we got a bollocking for ruining the dive site, and then he was couldn't help but be happy because we'd found like the lost silver of Captain Kidd. They took a few pictures of it. Uh, that was in fact that was the first time I'd ever been in the media. Was my hand holding this bar of silver? There wasn't my face, just my hand. And I'm like, ah, that's me. yeah, I'm like, ah, that's me. Everyone was like, no, it's not. It was. Um, yeah, and then it was like it became this big thing. There was a little bit of trouble with the local government the Madagascan government thought we were looting so it looked like we were going to get arrested and we were trying to I then flicked roles or switched roles into being the person that was going to try and get us out of the country um, we were liaising with a few different people and then it didn't really come to that and we sort of naturally just sort of came away I think the bar of silver was given to the Madagascan government in I don't know as like a, like a peace offering it's probably being used as a paperweight somewhere now <laughs> But I, yeah, so how does that work? Does it? Who you know, owns that? Because it falls on their. It's not. It's out. It's out to sea. It's know, not. Yeah. Well, what yeah. happened was, I think there'd been a bit of issue. Like the Madagascans had didn't like the fact it was a U.S. production, even though there was Brits on the crew. It was a U.S. production. It was for the History Channel, and the the Madagascans didn't like the Americans being there, and, and they. They saw that they were looting, they felt that they were looting, even though they weren't, what they were going to do was whatever they found was going to be donated to a museum that hadn't even been built, that they were going to build in country for these people, for the, for the, you know, the local population. Mm. They didn't like it, and then they sort of kicked off Madagascar's an ex-French colony, so they've got links back to Paris. UNESCO is run by the French, and then they came in and sort of got us out of there. Really? And was it a kind of symbolic thing as well, like the, the fact that they didn't want the Americans to have the coup of finding the treasure, it was theirs to find, maybe? Yeah, I, I think so. I, uh, I don't know, I just don't think they wanted 55 right. kilograms of silver going anywhere else, and they were a little bit paranoid. It wasn't going to go anywhere else. That's amazing. But it was, you know, it was pretty cool. That place is awesome. It was a small island off Madagascar called Ile Saint-Marie, and they've got you, we went off into the jungle on one of the... We were out there for four weeks doing all these... You know, following different stories with regard to pirates, and we went off into the jungle, and there's a there is a pirate graveyard, and there's like skull and crossbones on graves, oh on God. sort of like headstones and what have you. It's cool. There's some incredible stat about the amount of treasure out there that hasn't been found. Yeah, apparently. I was hoping you'd know it. Well, I don't know it though. No. I know that there's a lot. People <laughs> keep telling me I want to go. Yeah. Everyone thinks I'm like a. a treasure expert now that I've because <laughs> I miraculously found a bar of silver, but. Well, I, wouldn't mind, I, wouldn't mind, I reckon I should go out there. Someone should pay me to go away and try and look for treasure. There you go. Yeah. But it sounds to me like you've got your fix from this expedition. Suddenly you've got a bit of a bit yeah. of adrenaline, a bit of jeopardy, perhaps what you were looking for post I think military. Yeah, basically what happened when I first left, I was I I ended up lying to myself about what I thought I should be doing with my life. So I'd done twenty years in the military, which was pretty mental. 
And then I left and figured, well, because I've left for those reasons, you know, the, the PTSD and mental health, then obviously I need to do a normal job and that didn't work. And so it was like a learning process for me those few years where I was trying to do a normal job, whatever that is. And then realised that I needed to go back to my roots and do stuff that excited me and made and, and made me happy. So, you know, just by sheer luck that I was scratching around for work, mate of mine needed help. I helped him out and then found out that, you know, the TV world was not dissimilar to the world that I used to work mm-hmm. in, really. And the people that work in it are almost identical fundamentally. I mean, they're, you know, both... Both groups would hate me saying that, but it's true. If, if you think about it, you know, everyone sees military types as not very clever, a little bit right-wing. And then people in TV are a little bit too clever and a little bit more liberal, but they're not. They're fundamentally both the same sort of people. What, in the sense, what, drill-seekers prepared to push the boundaries? What um, is that? Workaholics, dedicated to their work, perfectionists, uh, love to travel, like to have a lot of things going on all at once. Mm. like letting their hair down so you know all those things mixed together make the sort of people that go into either the military or or this sort of world now that I've weirdly found myself in did you sort of looking back do you feel like you had to go through that normal boring job bit to know that that's what you couldn't do long term or could you have worked that out for yourself, do you think, on, on reflection? I think I needed to do it to learn. Mm. It was a learning curve. I joined the military when I was 16 years old, so I didn't know... I genuinely didn't know my ass from my elbow. And I needed to find out what was going to work mm. for me. So it was, even though at the time I was getting frustrated with myself and getting frustrated with life, I think like, a lot of advice I give to people now is like, you have to have that journey. and Don't be upset about being down. It's a good thing because eventually you'll find something that does work and it will make, you know, being down now makes that bit more, much so much more better when you find the right thing. But it, it is just a journey and they're sort of supposed to be fun, aren't they? So. Yeah, but I mean, you say that, that journey nearly cost you your life. You, you've talked openly about the depression that you went through. Mm after leaving and then and you know how close do you think you came to um to ending it all that's a, that is a good question because i'm not sure right i was stood on top of a cliff having a having a bit of a moment as in i was pretty upset nothing was going right you know my the relationship i was in was just it was not good for anyone that was anywhere near it let alone the people involved in it and i'd you know, I'd finished a job, a career that I loved. And I genuinely, I remember thinking that maybe my time on this planet is is done. I'm, you know, I don't know what else I can do. I've, you know, I've been a special forces operator doing stuff that I properly love. And I've been told I can't do that now. And in the process, I was failing. I, I felt that I was failing at everything else. And so I did have a moment and I was stood up there now. Whether I was going to do it or not, I don't know. I think I just needed to explore that emotion or that sort of situation anyway and, and, and look at what I needed to do. It was a proper slap around the face because it was like, right, you either... My point being was I, I stood there and I remember thinking, right, I either launch myself off this cliff or I change, I, I, I change everything about what I'm doing, which is... So I walked away from the cliff and changed everything and, and decided that I was going to become a positive person. Because before then, leading up to that point, for about 18 months, two years, I wasn't. God, I mean, unbelievable crossroads, like that moment. But, mm. but what ultimately made you take the step back Probably, from the edge of the cliff? Um, the fact that I'm scared of heights. <laughs> um, nah, that was a joke, but not a good one. Um, I am scared of heights, actually. But I don't know, I think... I don't know. I'm like Part of me thinks I didn't have the balls to... That's not a very good thing to say, actually. But, you know, part of me thinks I just wasn't going to do it. Mm. I just need... I don't know. I genuinely don't know what happened up there. But all I did know was if I was going to walk away from that, then I needed to change an awful lot. Mm. And and I'm, I'm pleased I did. Because, you know... Uh... I think you know maybe we'll talk more on this later in the podcast, but I don't pretend to understand. And obviously, trying to come to terms with Caroline's suicide lately, mm. I don't. 
I don't understand what goes through somebody's mind at that point. I, I equally, as a friend or family member, part of you hopes that their face will come into your head, be the one thing that holds them back. I gather that is, isn't what happens because they've gone past that point. But did you maybe think of someone that you felt it was worth staying alive for or was it for yourself? I think it was for myself, mm. if I'm honest. I'm not being, I'm not a selfish person, but I am, I'm a realist in the fact that there's only one person you live and die with on this planet, and it's you, so you've got to look after number one first before anything else starts mm. to fall into place. So for me, I don't think I was done with life at that point. I think that was probably the main thing. That's what made me well turn around. I wasn't done with life. I hadn't allowed myself to really disappear into a properly dark hole but I do understand, sort of understand, why people commit suicide. Mm. I do. I know there's a lot of people out there that get angry at the at the aftermath, the fallout from it, and I I understand that. I've got friends who've lost their, who've had parents commit suicide, and they are forever angry at them. But then. I try to understand it from that person's point of view as well, and, and sometimes you'll get yourself into a a pit of depression that is almost unmanageable. And so there is sometimes people out there that feel that it's just got too much, and they feel that they're probably a burden on everyone else, and things would be better if they weren't around, mm. which is unfortunate and sad, mm. but that is sometimes where people's minds take them. Yeah. I mean, in a way, you've answered the question because you, you said it was it had to be you that got yourself back out, and I guess yeah. that's the point, isn't it? Is that yeah? There's a, there's, there's a, only you that can save yourself. The thing with a lot of the a lot of people with mental health issues, they're on this. They they go out there and they're looking for the first person that can help them, but the only person that can help them is them. The people that they meet along the way just help them, they guide them. Only that person knows exactly what needs to be done to help themselves. Mm. They just need a bit of guidance, and, and that's part of what I speak about with the journey, you know, leaving the military, doing those jobs, you know, contemplating suicide and then not, and then going and look. What I then did was just look for people that could help me. They basically helped me navigate where it is that I want to go. But you needed to make that decision. I mean, I have to say that um, I... You know, and I know that from talking to other friends I know this is really natural but I do feel an incredible amount of guilt about Caroline I can't, I can't help that mm. because you do always think you know, what if you had just intervened that moment before and I know, I know what you're going to say and I know what everybody said to me and I've said it to them, to other friends um, but you can't, you can't help but think that no. because I feel like no man's an island you have to help each other in life yeah, I think that you're allowed to feel like that, by the way. Because if you're feeling like that, then, then you're allowed to feel like that. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> it's, mm. You're not fighting that. You're not fighting that feeling to want to sort of like not feel like that. So that's fine. But it's weird because you do. You feel guilty and you feel angry. You want to. You blame others and you blame yourself. It's this weird. I've never experienced suicide this closely before. Mm. And you know, I know of people that have done it before, but I've never experienced it this closely. I find it such a complex cauldron of emotion. Um, I'm not really sure how you process it. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm being unfair to expect you to be the expert. I know no, that you've, I know that you've experienced no, a lot of it yourself recently, is, haven't you? Yeah, I think um, I was on the phone to someone the other day actually, and um, I got a, so I've, you know, I've got. A, an ex-wife and a daughter with her so we speak regularly her brother committed suicide about four weeks ago and that, I mean when I when I saw what was going on there I could see I, I basically woke up in the morning on a Saturday and I had a load of text messages saying oh my brother's missing he's gone missing and I was like I don't know why I just was like this isn't going to end well mm. And before I even had a chance to phone her back from the, you know, to reply from the WhatsApp messages, my phone started ringing and it was her. So the messages I got were like, they were, you know, sort of like the, the, the evening before. Mm. And the following morning I get a phone call and it was her in like absolute pieces. And I was like, 
shit, I need to sort of try and work this out. Anyway, fast forward to the other day, and I was chatting, and she was explaining how she felt so guilty, so angry. You know, it's all this mix of emotions, but that is just what happens when these things happen. Mm. You know, we are human, and we don't understand, especially we don't understand, if we don't understand what's happened, then obviously you're going to have a mix of emotions that flood in. There's nothing... Only you, again, we go back to the people, you know, who, who's there to help you and what should you do. Only you, only you will work that out mm. over a period of time, but it's not, it doesn't happen straight away. You just have to sort of semi, I don't know, you sort of, you have to give yourself time to sit there and think about why you feel like that and then explore it a little bit, pay it the respect that it deserves mm. and pay yourself the, you know, that same respect. Allow yourself to feel like that. And then over a period of time, it, it you know it does disappear. It mm. disappears not totally, but it gets easier because that's what happens with humans. What in you, what you get clarity once you, once that process is under. I don't know whether you will ever get clarity because you might not ever understand why some you you might not be someone that understands why people go into those places no. and then do what they do. No. But your you know your life moves on, mm. and you've got to continually keep moving forward and that's just another piece of your life that's mm. that's happened and it will be something you know it's another building block as to the person that you're going to be become yeah. on the ptsd thing so just so i understand it you you discharge you're medically discharged you have no say in that at all do you, what input do you have into that decision being made it, it happened quite quick so i came back from come back from a tour I'd done quite a few I came back and I felt differently about the, the job the jo- I mean the job is as a young lad it is cool you do some awesome stuff and I was now like a senior I was a senior member of a squadron I was a team leader you know I'd done 10 years in the special forces and I was getting ready to go out again on another tour and for the first time ever I just couldn't be asked. I was like, I, just, I wasn't excited. And all the times before, I'd always been excited. And then when I started to think back on all the stuff that we'd done, all the training and all the build-up, because you do a lot of build-up before you go away, and you're doing, you're like doing cool stuff. You're like jumping out of planes and stuff. And I was just like, ah, I am bored as shitless of this job. And I was like, and I hated that. Mm-hmm. And I was there, you know, that you had new guys coming in. I'm supposed to be, you know inspiring them and I was having to dig deep just to inspire myself and I didn't think it was fair so I sort of under the radar approached the mental health people that were you know appointed to be take on that role that's pretty amazing that you knew to do that because Uh, a lot do you not do you not think that's quite forward thinking particularly for someone in the military yes how long ago are we talking now 2000 when was that that's a good question (laughs) 2011. But when you think so, that, right, well, hopefully now we're, we're talking and pushing young men to talk more and more about mental health, but actually that was, you know, for nearly a decade ago, that was pretty... Yeah, I would say that self-aware. I did it. And I was very, like, didn't want anyone to know, went in there, mm-hmm. sort of slipped in, what, sat you felt down. a sense of shame? Yeah, I was I like, because I just went in, I went in and I actually said, look, I'm not looking forward to this fucking tour that's coming up. And I says, that is not sitting right with me. I says, I love my job. I've always loved it. I wanted to do it since I was a young lad. I says, surely there's something that you can do that's going to fix this and I can go back to work. What, medication or no, no, counselling? I didn't what? know, yeah. I just right. figured there'd be like loads and loads of different tools that they'd have that right. could help me get back on track. And it wasn't really the case. You know, the military can be very blinkered in their approach to certain things and... I engaged in a a form of therapy and it just didn't it wasn't so much the therapy it was the there was just one person that I was to speak to and I just didn't connect with them and they didn't connect with me they were frustrated which means I could see they were frustrated so I was frustrated I was having to go over you know the first question was right what was the stressful moment that triggered all this and I'm like what are you on about what, there wasn't right. one. There wasn't one catalyst. There was oh no! I was like, which one do you want me to talk yeah, about? There's there like, so many. yeah, I've been like fighting for like ten years. So, 
oh, just shy of 10 years. I was like, which one do you want me to talk about? And then, so it was like an accumulation and then... Yeah, it wasn't, was like it, it wasn't like I was suffering from like flashbacks. You know, like right, yeah. in Hollywood, you see people jumping, yeah. diving for cover behind bins and that when a car backfires. It was none of that. I just felt different. I'd like really lost my drive with at work. And, yeah. and I think there was an element of the last tour that we'd done was horrendous. We'd lost a lot of people and I was... I think I felt slightly more fragile as a human. I can remember thinking, I wonder how much of this I've got left in me before I catch it up. And I think that probably played a big part of it. But but ultimately, it was mainly just the fact that I'd lost my mojo for it. And I needed, I wanted to get it back. But then what happened with the, the fact that, you know, I didn't engage very well with the individual that I was supposed to be talking to. I couldn't see a way out. There was frustration on both sides. And then a report was written and I was told by a psychiatrist that the one thing that would fix you would be to leave the military. But I, that, I see that really pisses me off because I feel like, how can your destiny be determined? Now, don't get me wrong, your life's gone on to be great. But Jesus, had you jumped off those cliffs, had you not had the strength of character or, or the presence of mind or whatever it was well, that stopped you, yeah. that one person, because yeah. they weren't a great fit for you at that moment in time, so that, could have um, led to your demise. Well, it sort of nearly did, I suppose, because I disagreed. I was like, no, there's no way. What do you mean? That's going to fix me. I don't, I don't agree. And I, I went through a period of time where I was adamant that that wasn't the case. And then I went on holiday, actually, with... with my family at the time and I had a fucking mare on that holiday. I, just, I probably genuinely did have a weird flashback maybe. Not in this sort of weird, not in the sense that probably people think about, but I just went for a run on a beach in Mexico and then I suddenly thought, thought about being back in somewhere else and it all, all had a bit of a weird spin on me and then I ended up being a a really, really impossible person to be around for the rest of the holiday. I feel really sorry for the rest of the people that were with me. In what sense? Like, what was your Just behavior? moody as fuck. Really? Yeah, just, just, just moody as pretty, yeah, pretty miserable. I could see there was stuff happening. I'm like, fucking hell, there was stuff. I'd never really thought about this before. There was stuff happening on telly, and I, I sort of knew that I wasn't going to be a part of that sort of stuff anymore. Mm-hmm. So basically, there was some stuff had hit the news while I was on holiday and I was like, mm. in fact, it was, yeah, it was when Bin Laden got done. And I was a bit, I saw it on the news and I was a bit like, I'm not really going to be involved in stuff like that anymore. And it sort of like, just, I don't know, just sent me off on a little bit of a moody stint. And yeah, I mean, I know a lot of people that do that, project their yeah. grumpiness towards the ones they love. Yeah. And perhaps, um, thank you, reaching for the water. Um, But yeah, look, I I mean, that's a pretty human reaction, isn't it, to do that? It's just not very fair on the people around you. No, it isn't. And, you know, I didn't really know what was going on at the time, but it was after that holiday I came back, and because of the way I was, I went back into work, and I was like, right, okay, obviously you're right, I need to leave the military. So then you go on a, what you call an emboss, I can't even remember what that stands for, but it basically means your all your medical files get reviewed. At the very end, I go into a massive room, oak table, high-ranking officials, never met them before. Sounds bloody awful. Sit there, they proclaim to know me, and they're like, right, we've decided that you're going to leave the military. And I was like, okay, fine. So then my, my leave date was the 5th of April, 2012. And I remember waking up on the 6th of April, and I didn't feel any different. In fact, I felt worse. God, and then what kind of support did you have from there on in? None really, but that was that was a mix of their fault and my fault, to be fair, because I just disappeared off the face of the planet. I just sort of scurried away down to Devon and sort of didn't really speak to anyone because I was embarrassed about how I'd left and why I'd left. And so the support, the the support, it shouldn't have been my choice. There should have. They should, it should have been, there should have been a robust system in place that made sure that I was, or any individual was supported properly. Mm. Do you think that people do have a shelf life when it comes to military service? Or do you think that it's just such a personal experience there isn't a... I think it's personal. I think majority of people probably will have a shelf life. I've got mates that are still in. Mm. Um, obviously, the, 
as you progress on in that job, you do less of the gnarly stuff and more of the sitting behind desks and organising stuff. But that in itself can have an impact, though, surely, because you're yeah, still not getting well, your, yeah, your hits. From yeah, exactly. I've got a lot of mates that are like, I'm done now. See, a lot of a lot do seem to go into security and m- become mercenaries, and that in itself, I mean, I don't. I, no, you no, tell it's, me. It's cool. You, no, no, it's cool. No, it's cool. No, I think they, I think they're called uh, security. Sorry. They're private contractors. Sorry, 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 sorry. <laughs> no, no, they're any still private people, contractors. No, no, don't worry about that. <laughs> no, but I mean, but is that again just a, a way of saying I've got a skill set, I need to use it, but this is all I know. This it is, is you know, yeah. Where else can I put it I to think good use? a lot of military people undersell themselves. Right. And they don't, Some not not all of them, don't get me wrong, there are people that do get what they've learned in the military and take it on to do different things outside. But a lot of people don't understand the skill sets that they have and how they can offer stuff in other industries. But... Mm. A lot of guys do just de- girls as well just default into the security world, which mm. is not that as glamorous as the bodyguard makes out. I oh, know, I bet. Um, so that was sort of eight years ago. Um, do you think that enough has changed for people in your situation now? Is think, the support there now? I think the support is getting a lot better. It could always be better, mm. but they've definitely progressed on a lot from where they were. You know, there's I've got friends who have presented themselves post me doing it, not because of me, but because of just them. They've, and they've been in pretty bad places and they've sorted themselves out and they're now back in that job doing all the stuff that people probably thought they'd never do again. I mean, you say not because of you and it might may or might not be, but it does take people like you to talk the way you are now and have been. Where do you think that kind of turning point was for you to stop feeling ashamed of leaving? Um, as opposed to, you know, recognizing that it was very it, it human. It didn't happen straight away because what happened was when we, when I left, bumped into a mate. We'd known each other in the Marines from years ago. He had left almost at the same time, around the same sort of period, you know, twenty-year period, for the same reasons. And we just we just sat down having a beer, moaning about the system, going, "It's shit. Let us down. That was crap. That was crap." And then we were like, instead of moaning, why don't we set something up that helps? fill that gap now we didn't know what the hell we were doing and what it was going to look like but it's now become this organization that helps people does the intervention stuff you know the set therapies and coaching and all that and then it sort of helps people mm. refocus but it was during that period that I sort of started to openly talk a, to a few people about it I was talking to friends that were suffering so that was part of me opening up I'd stopped lying about why I'd left because I used to lie. I used to say it was my hearing that was fucked and everyone, that's why I got discharged. It was a blatant lie. How long did you say that? Well, I kept that going for about a year. No one believes me. That's just for my own... You say it was tinnitus? Yeah, yeah. I had tinnitus and whatnot. But, but um, yeah, and then I sort of like started to talk about it a bit more, a bit more, a bit more. And then the TV show came about and the, one, of the main re- one of the main reasons I did it, apart from I needed money, but one of the main reasons I did it was I wanted to use it as a platform to talk about mental health. And then, so I did. And then I can remember the day that that episode, it was episode two of series one of SASE Days Wins. Mm. The day that that was going to TX that night, so the day, night it was going out, that day I was the worst person to be around. Because I knew what was coming and I was really, really worried about the the fallout from it. I was worried about people's perception and their, I don't know, I was panicking. What, their perception of you or yeah. what you were trying to do? Uh, both? No, both. Right. I but think, why would that be a bad thing? I don't know, because know because be a lot of people have told me you should never open up about mental health, you don't admit that you've got problems, you know, there's a bit of the old school mentality. Yeah, yeah. So I was panicking, but it was all right in the end anyway, so... Unbelievable. Okay, time for Bose's handy tips about how we can all cope a bit better over the next few weeks and potentially months um, under lockdown. I think that's part of the problem, isn't it? We just don't know how long this is going to last. And that lack of control over our own lives can let anxiety creep in. But hopefully, if we can all follow these little nuggets of advice, it may just help. Okay, first of all, take time for yourself to stay centred and sane. 
Number two, seize moments of calm. They may be few and far between, but they are out there. You just need to grab them with both hands. Number three, find your sanctuary away from the chaos. Now, if like me, your whole house is chaotic, then that might be hard. But there must be a little corner somewhere where you can take yourself off and just have a moment or two. Because remember, timeouts aren't just for kids. It's really important to take a little me time because it can go a long way. I know that sounds a bit selfish because I always feel guilty if I go off and read a book or listen to some music or have a bath, all three at the same time. But I think and hope that we all come back to our jobs in the house with the kids, with our family, as better mothers, better partners, more productive if we have taken a bit of time out. Cabin fever is real. So one way to smash that oppressive feeling is to learn something new. Take up a new hobby, for example. Don't resist and fight the new norm. Embrace it. Shape it to suit you. For example, you could move rooms, change the layout at your home, create a new space dedicated to a new hobby. Make working for home work for you. Don't be afraid of the silence, if indeed it exists at any point during your day. It can be truly golden after all. Try to block out unhelpful noise and that will also reduce your anxiety. It's not where you work, it's how you work. So make it work for you with a little bit of help from Bose. Feel more, do more, be more with Bose. Um, yeah, on SES... Who Dares Wins. I mean, I think I'm right in saying it is Channel 4's most popular show. Rates incredibly highly, like 4 million is, for Channel 4, which yeah, is great. It's, that is good for Channel 4. I think Bake Off is their biggest oh, one. But they inherited that. They inherited, they inherited it. Yeah, exactly. You created this. Yeah. Um, are you surprised by how popular it is and why do you think it is such a hit? When we first filmed that, first, I had no idea what it was going to be like. I thought it was going to be another little flash in the pan, got a few viewers, but didn't get recommissioned. It was a great experience, and I'll learn from that and maybe go on and do some other work not dissimilar to it. But mm. it wasn't. It it sort of blew up quite big to begin. Well, it it's organically grown, but it did do quite well in its first season. Mm. Um, why is it so popular? I think because it is quite real. We don't... It is all. It's as authentic as we can make it without breaking any rules, um, and because it's about real people and their struggles and how they get through that and how they can move forward with their lives. Hopefully, mm-hmm. so I think I think people can relate. To, uh, the casting's good. I think loads of people watch it wondering whether they could do it. Yeah, yeah. I reckon there's a lot of that. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think. It's just, I think people out they like there's people out there that think that they can do it or wonder how they could do on it. Mm. Now anyone out there could do really they could do well on it, but they people psych themselves out, and the only thing that lets them down is their head, because you don't need to be that fit to do it. You are well, that's a lie. So do you think? Well, you definitely have to be fit you to have do to it. Be so fit, for God's but... sake, right? But um, do you think that it kind of came? as part of this, I don't want to say revolution, because I don't think that it it is, as you touched on before, gone far enough yet. But do you think it has come, like dovetailed in with this whole wave of talking about mental health more, and therefore people are just sitting up listening in a way and prepared to communicate in a way and prepared to look at themselves in a way that they haven't been able to before? Yeah, I think... I think the... the the TV show does it in a really subtle way. Yeah. It's not like you've got to talk about mental health and you've got to talk about your issues and this is how you get over it. It's just like, it's basically just watching. We we basically run a 12-day course, that's it. And there's people, and you know, there's a little, there's very little of it produced apart from like all the gnarly tasks we get them to do, which obviously need producing because you've got to be at a certain place, certain time, health and safety, all this sort of rubbish. Not rubbish, you know what I mean? Very important. Yeah, very important. But all this, you know, all the other bits and pieces in the background, edit that bit out. We <laughs> <laughs> um, just had a mayor of health and safety as well. Um, so, yeah, apart from that, it is just, 
it's a natural way of watching people get put through the meat grinder, but also at the same time talk about real things that have happened to them that they feel they need to sort of work out. Mm. And, then, and then in turn, the viewers kind of hold up a bit of a mirror to themselves and probably yeah. ask themselves questions they haven't before. Yeah, I think it does encourage people to ask those questions because there's a group of people and all the people that come on it, are, you know, as much as they can do our heads in, like hats off to them, that's awesome to be able to come out and talk about whatever it is you need to talk about. But in the process, what that does is it gets people to do the same things to themselves and maybe it inspires them to go and maybe get help or talk to someone. The amount of people that message and say, oh, thank God for that show, it's made me want to go and talk to someone about whatever's going on in my life at the moment. And you're like, ah, bloody hell, that's awesome. That is amazing. Yeah. Do you ever feel a burden of responsibility for the amount of people that do message you and ask for help or... You know, because it must be difficult, particularly when it's a stranger, to know how long to engage with them on. And, you know, obviously, potentially a can of worms when you start a conversation, but equally you want to, be, you want to help. It and is, you, you know... Yeah, it is mega difficult. It is, isn't it? Yeah, I don't really know. And there's not a proper answer for it because there's so many messages that come through that you, I, as a human being, I can't immerse myself in all of them because... I will have no time for anyone in my life, including myself. Mm. And that's not taking anything away from those people that are, you know, talking to me. But I just can't. But I do try to. I do try to sort of, I'll flick through some. And if something catches my attention, then if I can help, I'll do something about it. It's so hard, isn't it? My, my mum's a, a, a barrister for family in family law. Mm. And she always says that um, she finds it really difficult because... Well, not difficult, but she has a huge, feels a huge amount of responsibility because mm. it's just another day in court for her. But that day is everything to that yeah, mum, yeah. dad, child, and so she has to give a lot of herself in that respect. And every time, that, and she'll come away pretty flat if she hasn't been able to give it her all because mm. she knows that their whole lives hinge on that day in court. Mm. And I guess that must be a similar sort of thing to you. But you, you're not a psychotherapist, you're not a psychologist, mm. but you have come through your own demons and you know you're out there working on a show that is yeah. is showing all that up so it must be you know the human in you wants to help everyone I suppose you do. there's a there's part of you also worries about you know when you so if I do suddenly engage with someone or someone catches me in the street I then start in the back of my mind I'm like what if I offer some advice and it doesn't yeah it that goes the opposite way or does something else and you're like, ah, oh, shit, I need... And so I'm, all, I'm very careful in saying, look, this is, this is in my opinion and this worked for me, but you are a different person yeah. altogether probably. So it's about finding your own way, but this is a bit of advice or whatever. Yeah. And when you're on the show, I always wonder this, because you all look double-R bastards and you try not to show emotion, like the interrogation really? stuff. Well, I think you show. I think you show a little bit of it. Yeah. But how how often are you kind of moved by what you're hearing? How often do you just want to get up and give them a cuddle? Nah, never. Shut up. Um, we we have a laugh. Like me, I, there's me and one of the other lads. Me and Ollie have. A, we like we've known each other a long time. And we try and like we try and like break break barriers down by having a laugh with them, and trying to be a bit more serious. I think they edit it out. They don't like us being nice, but we we're not nice. We sort of, you know, if if we do something funny in those interrogation rooms with the person, you can see they become super super uncomfortable, and they're like, "What the fuck?" and they don't really know how to take you. And then you sort of like keep doing it, and then you see them break it breaks a barrier down easier than just screaming and shouting at them. Really? Yeah. So well, we you sort, sort of, of lull them into a false sense of security and then go in for the kill. Not really like that a false very sense of security. Yeah. <laughs> I've got a very interesting story that I can't talk about about a manipulative individual oh, that you would know as well, I reckon. You have to tell me. You can't tell you because it's like coming out on the next celebrity one. Oh, shit. <laughs> I'll talk to you in a bit. Uh, um, I'll tell you a lot later, so, yeah, don't we worry. Basically, we, do, we, we break them down, like we break the barriers down, but it's not like we then go in for the kill, we just get the information we need and then we use it later on. <laughs> so we sort of, we are a little bit out of order. Well, no, no, it's for their own good. Well, there you go. That's how you justify it to yourself. Does yeah. it feel like a bit of a game? Because at least you know that there aren't consequences in the way there would be in the real world. Everything's a game, isn't it? There you go. 
even it. even the even the old even the serious stuff was a game. I think I always used to I used to I like a few of us is like me Ollie definitely we always had we always had a laugh even when things were serious mm. and I think that was one of the things that kept us going. Your so we do mechanism. yeah we and we do the same now mm. and yeah. Well, when you serve together, you mean, as well? Yeah, as well as yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. And we were, yeah, we were pretty roguish, but, yeah, we had a laugh. I feel like a story coming on. I know. There are too many. I don't know, there's lots. Um, no, no, Go yeah. On, we, give us one. We, oh, I don't know. We, we just used, we didn't take ourselves seriously, and that was all. That's a good thing. Yeah. Um, how have other people um, from within... Special Forces responded to you going into television, like some would say cashing in on your So past. my, okay, before cashing in on my past, my response to that quickly is, because I get a little bit heated about this. Yeah, they're good, but, um, I'm not you too. No, I, I'm not. The, oh no, because like, the, the, the point being, yeah, I, the, the, actually, yeah, to put it straight, I, and there are people, there are people that aren't in the military that are like, you're a, you're a sellout. And my point there is, I left the military because I had PTSD. I then tried to get a lot of the work that I tried to get in security, I couldn't get because in the joining performance for a lot of the companies, it would be, have you had any, have you got any un underlying mental health issues? And I'm like, fucking hell. So I couldn't get some of the big contracts or some of the big jobs. So essentially what you've got there is I'm, I've done 20 years in the military where I've learned an awful lot. It's like doing a university degree times... 10 mm -hmm. and then at the end of it you can't use any ounce of that information at all to do anything well, so the I, skill sets yeah so the skill set so I was yeah, back yeah. back to square one mm. and then all of a sudden this opportunity came about and I was like well I'm not going to do anything that I'm never going to put my friends at jeopardy, in jeopardy I'm not going to talk about secrets I'm not going to talk about how we do stuff but there is an op opportunity here to to um, take and so I thought, I, I, I did consider it, but it, did, it still didn't sit right with me at the, in the beginning. And I was like, oh, I don't know about this. And then for all those years when I needed support, I didn't hear from anyone. And then all of a sudden they obviously got wind of it and I get a phone call going, oh, we've heard you. And I'm like, I was a bit like, oh, so now you decide to phone me up. I'm like, where, you know, I says, if I'm honest, I need, I'm fucking skint. I've got nothing. I can't get jobs because it's really hard because of my being branded with a mental health issue. And so I was like, look, if I don't do it, someone, you, you, they'll have someone else do it. And I said, you could use me as a conduit to try and, you know, move this project in a way that you're comfortable with. And I was told, no, we can't, we can't engage in that. And I said, fine, well, what do I need to do to sort of at least be sort of accepted? And they were like, well, there is a process to go through. So I said, okay, fine. We'll go through the process. We go through the process. We don't break any rules, otherwise I'd be in prison. Mm. So and that's the process? Oh, like the do's and don'ts? Oh, there's just do's and don'ts. It's like a, each time we do the series, you write a letter, just get sent to them, they read it, then they send you a letter back saying, yes, we grant you permission to work in this TV show. We must remind you not to do X, Y, or Z. Right. Uh, so there is a there's what happens if you there. did do X, Y, or Z? Oh, you, you go to court and stuff but it, it, that's like talking about operational information you know where we did stuff and what the code names were and all this sort of stuff stuff we that no one's do anyway, yeah. well no one's interested in it anyway so yeah there is you know the organisation as an organisation frowns upon it because it makes them feel uneasy that there's people out there doing this but the guys that are in the organisation who are close friends of mine, you know, there's a few out there that don't like it and we don't talk. And then I've got really, really close friends who are pretty high up and pretty influential that love it. Mm. I think it's great. And what, as a recruitment tool, does it ever work to that respect? Yeah. It, I saw I've got a friend that was in, he was in recruitment for a bit, he's left now. So he, he, we joined together, he then, you know, progressed on and he was, in charge of recruitment for the organisation and we were chatting one day and he was like oh mate he goes um, I hate, it pains me to say this but a lot of the young lads that come through now we you know we have to ask them what why they're joining up and where they found out about the special forces 
And he says about 50% of them say that fucking TV show. And I'm like, you owe me. I should be getting commission sure, on this. I was going to say, yeah. it would kick back, be nice, wouldn't it? But no, so yeah, there is, you know, this day and age, people are hungry for information and media make it, you know, quite easy to find out that information. So you've got to roll with it and, you know, some people don't agree with it, but well, I, I always make sure that I conduct myself in a way that I would be happy with if I was on the other side. In the pink and bows, really want to help during this lockdown. Now, whether we can or not is another question, but we can try and we're going to do that by giving away some more Bose noise cancelling headphones. To win them, just share mini anecdotes from your time in lockdown and give us some feedback on this series. Always put in the hashtag Bose and tag in a couple of mates to do the same. And you never know, those headphones could be yours. Good luck. Stay safe and stay connected. Is there any element of jealousy, do you think, that you're doing it and they're not? Can't answer that, I suppose. No, but as in you would, don't know. Like They may not ever admit that. Don't know, maybe. Yeah. Maybe some people tell me that there might be a little bit, but... Because I don't think you glamorise it, but I certainly think you make it more accessible and you're certainly posing questions um, that need asking and need answering in yeah. life. I think it is a good way of doing it there is interest in the military and the special forces, so we've done it in a way that doesn't jeopardise any, op- you know, operations, missions, people. Yeah. We've just done it in a way that's interesting and people engage with it, so I'm happy with that. Are they, are they concerned that it's got, like, sucked into this whole celebrity culture and they, they don't, don't want the two to meet? <sighs> they, it, it, does, it does annoy me because there's people out there that go out and train, you know, teach foreign foreign forces, foreign agencies, how we do business, and yet we go on telly and don't talk about any of that. We just have a bit of a laugh, if anything, and, and, and talk about people's real-life issues. So, I don't know, I think, you know, there is, there is, a, there is an element of sort of a, maybe a little bit of jealousy. I'll probably get a bit of kickback from that, but... I don't care. What about what about the the other TV work you've done? What about the Narcos, uh, the uh, drug cartel one? I mean, that looked unbelievable. I like, love, yeah, I love that. It was awesome. I, I mean, hopefully we'll do more. But that. Why did I, you love it? Don't know. I just really did. I did, I wasn't too sure how it was going to go, but. What, the jeopardy g- of it? What, what, uh, yeah. Did you well, feel? Did you feel in danger making it? Yeah. Yeah, it was pretty. It was gnarly. Yeah, there was some sketchy moments, but I do like that. I like challenging myself with regard to people, as in, I like, I like to be put up against it and see if I can converse with people that I wouldn't normally converse with. And you're in, it's giving you an opportunity to go to places you'd never normally go to, learn about different people, learn about different cultures, learn about people's struggles. There's a lot of people struggling out there, that's why they get involved in that stuff. And it gives you another. It gives you a new perspective on stuff that you thought you knew about, but didn't really. I mean, I was involved in the war on drugs quite heavily, you know, being a, being in the special forces, and you know, going out there and visiting those countries and meeting those people. I learned an awful lot about a little about how futile the war on drugs is to a certain degree. What in terms of how wrong we get it? Yeah, I think we're fighting it at the wrong level. So. We're ploughing a lot of billions and billions of pounds worth and dollars worth of, you know, finance into the war on drugs through hardware, soldiers, and yet it should be, it needs to be fought on a social level. You know, we need to invest in those areas that are being exploited by cartels. We need to, you know, governments need to be looking after their own people so there's no gap for organised crime to exploit. So, in other words, going in grassroots level to give jobs to those who need it so that yeah, they don't mean, have their heads turned. Yeah. I mean, a very, very, very... I mean, part of me actually thinks that it's that futile. I mean, I'll probably get into a lot of trouble for this, but you should probably legalise the whole trade and control the substance, tax it. So you're, not, you're not actually spending money on the war, you're, you're earning money. You control it, you take, a, take away a revenue stream from an organised crime unit... And then, there you go, we've got another industry. 
Do you think any... There's no different to uh, alcohol and cigarettes, as far as I'm concerned. Do you think that there's um, a benefit to that kind of documentary making that you've embarked on, to educating people back here who are using drugs? Do you think... or do you think that they, they don't really give a shit? Like, that they, they, there's not a, non, a strong enough I think it will be a mix. There'll be some people that might take it on board and actually think about what they're doing. Yeah. But I also think that most people don't, they don't really want to, they sort of know it and they're like, oh, I don't really want to think about that. They want to make that connection. Yeah, yeah, they want to yeah, make that yeah. connection. But. but again, it was like so well received by viewers. Mm. Why, why do you think do you think it's because you're giving them a portal onto a completely different world that they otherwise wouldn't you know there's part of them that can relate to what you're saying about wanting to go see different cultures but you give them that you're the conduit for that yeah I don't know what I don't know I, don't, I, sp- I think it, I went they? in there and just spoke openly about how I felt and also what I was seeing so I think I brought because I've got an element of knowledge in that world you know the people I was going out with, the you know, the law enforcement lot, I was basically sort of scrutinising what they did and speaking about it and talking about why they were doing what they were doing and explaining that so people could understand. Because I'm very aware, and it took me, a, and part of it was my journey leaving the military, that I would go into a room and talk about stuff and after, and like people wouldn't understand the bloody thing I was talking about because I was talking in a completely different language. Mm. And because of those experiences, it made me realise that I learned to sort of become the interpreter. And I remember, I, even now when I'm with military people and we talk, talking to other people that aren't military, I actually interject and go like, well, here's, they'll use you know an acronym or some form of terminology and then, I'll be, and then I'll explain it to the people. So I think I was doing that, I made a point of doing that in that show so people could understand the world that I was looking at without me going too off yeah. on a weird tangent. Yeah, because you said about earlier about the importance of conversing with people from completely different backgrounds, but it's almost like negotiating. You're, as you say, like a translator, you're, you're the yeah. middleman. Yeah. So that, that's a real skill set, isn't it? I don't know. What is? I've just I mean, worked it out. <laughs> but I tell you, the common theme, I think, from talking to you today has been communication, like feels like you're a, a real communicator. Does that, does that feel right? Yeah, I reckon. I reckon my missus might disagree. Oh. No, no. Um, yeah, I think so. I think I'm... I do like communicating. I know how important it is. You know, we talk about communication all the time. I go around talking to corporate companies and talking about how they can better achieve what they're trying to achieve. And a lot of it just boils down to communication. I think that is one of the main skill sets I learned from the military and the one that I managed to bring across with me was the whole, you've got to, you know, for anything to work, it's all about communication because most of the time, if people are getting pissed off about things and they don't understand something, it's because it hasn't been communicated properly, if that makes sense. No, it totally does, but it feels like the TV work that you've done and the mental health work that you're doing and the Rock to Recovery stuff... It is just all about talking, keep talking, keep talking, and understanding each other. Yeah, I think, I genuinely think that people don't, they don't um, get how important talking is. It's like mega important. It's like mega easy. We do it all the time, but we don't really do it. Mm. And it's it's the one thing that actually saves lives and changes people's lives, you know. Everyone thinks that being in the special forces, we're all these people that go around shooting shit up, and we didn't actually ever want to really get into that situation. And we learned very early on how to communicate with some pretty gnarly people, and because of that, we got ourselves out of situations. And that's what I've learned in life, and that's what I take away and try and you know carry on doing in, in a different world. It feels like you've taken that and that's evolved with you since you've left as opposed to necessarily but you're saying that actually there was examples on the ground where you where you use communication to what avert mm. violence yeah you do because most a lot of the time when you're in the special forces you you're working in small teams or you're working sometimes you're actually working with bad people and people that you're sort of there to have an effect on but you realize that it's you know, to actually get the outcome that you want, it's better to sort of like 
engage with them and get them to buy into what it is that you're trying to achieve. You sort of, yeah, you do become a little bit, bit like a manipulator, I suppose. But is that hard if you don't understand where they're coming from or you completely fundamentally disagree you with might, You might not understand where they're coming from, but they're yeah. still a human being. And so that's the bit that you need to focus on. So I might not get, you know, I might not get their mindset. I might not get what they're trying to achieve, and but they're still a person. So there'll be a way that you can talk to. It's like going on that narcos thing. You go and talk to like all these hitmen, and you know they're 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 running cocaine labs and meth labs, and they're not nice people. But you know, quick slap on the shoulder and tell a few jokes, and everyone's laughing and you're getting what you want out of the whole situation, do you know what I mean? But do you not feel like you've compromised yourself doing that? Or you just see the bigger picture? No, I just see the bigger picture. Shit. <laughs> like, the other thing is that I, I, I can't not do that, otherwise I'll end up dead. So it's about self-preservation a little bit as well. Okay, yeah. And the road to, the, sorry, the rock to recovery stuff, um, it feels like everything that you said that applies to the ex-military can also apply to sport and people maybe transitioning from not just sport but any career any from career, yeah. one to the next and kind of many in many ways just redefining themselves um is there a kind of nugget of advice that you that you can give to, to anyone listening that's at a bit of a crossroads and um anyone that's getting to that crossroads always is at the crossroads the advice is embark on a journey and it is just try and turn what you see as a negative into a positive. So maybe your career is now coming to an end, the career that you've chosen. It's naturally coming to an end. Accept that and understand that you're just on a journey to find out who you, your new per, your new self is. That should be fun. It'll be a bit difficult. You're going to meet a lot of people on the way. Some will help, some won't. But just try and see it as an exciting journey. You'll be a stronger person for it. Evolving as opposed to yeah yeah you just a sort of you know we just clunky transition yeah we constantly evolve and your own personal evolution did that because you, you wrote a couple of books how useful was that as a process for understanding yourself and moving on to the next stage in your life yeah the book yeah that's really I mean I so the book thing like I had a mate that kept saying oh, I should write a book and I was like I am not writing a book I can't be. I just can't, first of all, can't be asked of it, and I don't, it doesn't sit right with me again, the whole, does it sit right with you? He persuaded, he kept on at me, and I was like, all right, mate, we'll, 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 I was like, sort of humouring him, I was like, yeah, we'll write a book, and I was like, we're not going to do anything with it, I'm just going to get him to do all the work. He started to write it, and then I was like, actually, if we're going to do it, I don't want it to be like a Rambo, look how hard we all are type thing, I want it to be about my emotional journey with mental health, and so he put a few bits together. The first draft, I was like, "No, nah, it's terrible. Not in, it doesn't. It's not how I would want it to come across." Why? Why was it? It was a bit too much. Like, yeah, and then we jumped out of a helicopter and shot loads of shit up, and look how hard we are, and every word was fuck, and you know, mm. it was like it's a little bit. Sums you up, didn't it? No. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> I know. I was trying to, yeah, yeah, I was trying to paint a different picture, but <laughs> we sort of, yeah, we just mold we. We spent a lot of time together, me and Matt. He's a legend, and and um, we eventually came out. It took it took like two years, and the, the book was done. And then and we that, just that's battle scars. That's battle scars, mm. yeah. And, and then was, what about life under fire? That's how to build. In, we've how just to finished build in the strength. Yeah, we've just finished writing it, so it's gonna start getting published. So it'll come out in October. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah. But that's more. That's more talking about my experience with how to build resilience and I know I'm not a big fan of the word resilience but people like using it so it's about how do you become more robust throughout your throughout life and it it draws upon my experiences it also draws upon other people's experiences not just about me there's a lot of other people's advice in there and then it's my spin and my opinion on what I think that all means so it's basically a, a sort of like dumbed down version of how to build resilience why don't you like the word resilience I don't know it's like oh you've got to be resilient that's all well and good saying you've got to be resilient I think I prefer um, being I don't know I prefer awareness to be resilient you have to be aware so people are like that what is emotional resilience I'm like emotional resilience is emotional awareness it's about being aware of your emotions and then you can be resilient towards them 
No, no, that totally makes sense because I feel like a lot of people compartmentalise and then they just block something off, close a little door and then assume that they've dealt with it and that they're then, what, more robust because of that? They haven't actually dealt with the problem. Yeah, exactly. So uh, one of the things I do now, and this has come over a period of time, but and what's I tell you what's really sort of made me more aware of it is living in London because you walk around London in the day and so many people are miserable as fuck and it does my head in and like to the point where if I get up on a let's use Monday morning as an example today uh, you get up in the morning and sometimes I'll wake up and I'll be like fuck me I feel pretty rubbish and instead of rushing around getting changed and fucking running out the door and getting on the tube and being pissed off with everyone and the day just spiralling I won't I'll sit on the end of the bed and I'll be like why do I feel shit and I'll I'll explore that for however long it needs to be explored and or however long I've got and then after about however long I'll probably work it out and I'm like oh yeah that's because of this so what do I need to do to make that better I'll go and have a cup of tea or I'll go to the gym or I'll go and pay the bill that I knew that was coming up or I'll fix the fucking washing machine or whatever and then all of a sudden you don't feel so shit you ain't rushed out the door, you're not bumping into people and you feel a bit better about yourself. That's emotional awareness, I think. Love it. You're not dragging it with you no, to your next you. encounter. You yeah, yeah. There's no need. You just like everyone else would be so much happier if they just were a little bit more aware of themselves. Gave them and they're giving themselves the time they're giving themselves a bit of self respect, I think. Yeah, I love it. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. Right, really enjoyed no it. Thanks a lot, yeah. Thanks so much, Foxy. Absolutely loved our chat. Um, As is the case with loads of these podcasts, you just kind of want more time, don't you? So maybe we'll talk to Foxy again. We've all got plenty of time on our hands after all. Uh, Well, actually, he seems really busy at the moment, but, um, you know, as busy as you can be in the current circumstances. I should tell you about his two books, just to give you a reminder, Battle Scars, uh, well worth a read, a Sunday Times bestseller, Um, in 2018 and out later this year life under fire how to build inner strength and thrive under pressure god we could all do with a bit of that at the moment couldn't we so uh yes i've put that on my book list for later in 2020 foxy thank you for your time please let us know your thoughts on the interview and who else you'd like me to speak to over the next few weeks and months Um, But for now, it's bye-bye. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay connected. This is Acast Recommends. Every week we pick one of our favourite shows and this is one we think you're going to love. This is Not a Drake Podcast is a new series from CBC Podcasts that uses seminal moments in Drake's career to explore the history and evolution of hip-hop, R&B, and black culture, and unpacks how rap is evolving with shifts in gender dynamics. It's also about the rapper who's blurred genres and dominated the world stage, and the larger hip-hop movement that made him. You can subscribe to This Is Not A Drake podcast on the CBC Listen app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast is home to the biggest podcast from the U.S. and around the world. Subscribe to this show and hundreds more now via ACAST or wherever you get your podcasts.